0: Read with me, John 13, very, very familiar passage, starting in verse 33. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now let me stop here a minute. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and his disciples are Jews. And so he says, as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. But now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. For by this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Now this, of course, many of you could probably quote this, and we we read these things. And I, I tend to, when I read the scriptures, there are things that just kind of pop off the page at me. And one of the first things that really popped off the page at me in the last year or so reading this passage is Jesus is speaking to the twelve. He's speaking to his disciples who are all Jewish. And he said, I said this to the Jews, but now I'm saying to yous. In other words, that lets me know that we know the new covenant did not come into fruition or it was not enacted until the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Because the writer of Hebrews tells us that uh, until the testator dies, that the covenant cannot be enacted. And so Jesus was carrying the new covenant in his blood, but much of what Jesus was doing and saying, he was speaking to Jews that were under the law. That's why when we read the words in red, we need to understand the context of audience and who he is speaking to, because he's not always speaking to quote-unquote Christians, and we can't take every word in red. I remember when the Holy Spirit showed this to me, it was actually through a lady who was a spiritual mama of mine, 1992, I'm sitting in Michigan at a Red Lobster with a lady by the name of Dr. Fuchsia Pickett. Mother Pickett was probably one of the greatest teachers of the 20th century, uh, had over four earned doctorates. She was a, uh, a seminary teacher in a Methodist seminary, and then she got baptized in the Holy Spirit, rocked her world, and she'd get up and she'd say, now this is what... What, this is what religion and theology always taught me, but now let me tell you what my teacher taught me. And she started talking about the Holy Spirit and uh, every little hair in the back of my neck would pop right up. And I mean, revelation would just flow out of her. She was an amazing woman of God. But I'll never forget, she sat across the table from me and she looked at me and she said, uh, you've been preaching for a couple of years. You were, you got out of Bible school. And she said, I bet that when you were, when you were in Bible school, there's certain things that, uh, that they taught you. And and one of the things, no doubt, that they taught you is that God needs nothing. And I was like, well, yes, ma'am. I mean, God is God. But, you know, when I was in Bible school, it was God is God. You know, for some reason, we added W's in there in the tradition I come from. You know, God's not just God. He's God, and he's God all by himself. And, you know, I mean, for some reason, that stuff never jumped on me. Thank God. I mean, I was like, why are you putting a W on that? It doesn't make it more spiritual to say God, Uh, As it is just to say, just to say, God. And uh, But then she said to me, she said also, uh, she said, first of all, God does need some things because God is love, and love cannot function without needing a recipient to pour its love into. And so uh, does God need some things? Yes, he needs uh, recipients, family to pour love into because you can't be love and just keep love to yourself. It has to pour out. So she said God needed some things. God God needed to create humanity because he had a need to love. And then she said this. She said, you probably were not taught that not everything in the Old Testament is the Old Covenant and not everything in the New Testament is the New Covenant. And I said, I wasn't taught that. I said, I I was taught New Testament is New Covenant, Old Testament is Old Covenant. She said the Old Covenant didn't start until Moses at Mount Sinai, that there was things before the Old Covenant. Not everything in the Old Testament is the Old Covenant. Not everything in the New Testament is the New Covenant, because the New Covenant did not start until the cross. So when Jesus is speaking, he's speaking to Old Covenant Jews, and you have to understand the context of that. Everything Jesus says is important. It's all applicable to us, but you got to understand who he was talking can do and it sent me on a whole journey in my life and i remember about 6 months later i went to preach a outdoor tent meeting for a preacher in michigan and he had had this ongoing thing for like 2 months and i was preaching a week of it and we go to eat saturday night and he said man god has been awesome in the last month we you know in the last month man uh, we've had a bunch of people saved but then he said this he said man but god's been speaking to me lately and he told me that if the rapture took place less than 10% of these people would make it. And I was like, wow, really? Less than 10%. And I said, where do you get that from? He said, well, Jesus said, narrow is the way that leads to eternal life wide is the gate that leads to destruction and not many walk there and i said well that's what he said but you know he wasn't talking to any christians he was talking to jews and how many know that under the law narrow was the way matter of fact it was nearly impossible to keep the law that's why the law was given to show you that you can't keep it and you needed a savior i said that ain't talking to any christians because jesus said now i am the way he split the gate wide open man i mean now whosoever will may come it's no longer i gotta dot eyes and cross t's man this thing is open now for all of humanity what are you talking about less than 10 percent all that messed up thinking that some of us have been around for years but that's when i realized reading this that jesus would say things to the disciples that was a new covenant concept but then he would be asked questions by pharisees And the Jewish people, Jesus wasn't being anti-Semitic. He wasn't saying, well, I'm not paying attention to the Jews. Because the truth is this, is that uh, every time Jesus would use language like the Jews, he wasn't being anti-Jewish people. He was dealing with the religious Jewish sacrificial system. Matter of fact, uh, the book of Acts says the same thing. It said that certain Jews came from Jerusalem and stirred up the people against Paul, and they actually stoned Paul and threw him off of a wall and left him for dead. But believers came and raised him from the dead. I preached a sermon years ago called Ben Stoned lately. Listen, you, are, you always know when you're around religious people because they always use the Bible as a Satan, and they accuse you. The Satan is called the accuser. It is that which is, accuses you. So if you're using Scripture to accuse anybody, you just became Satan we're looking for some entity and the truth is the Bible the scriptures were not made for accusation they were not there if we're accusing anybody using scripture we're using it wrong and so Jesus would say things like that that's why Jesus uh, Jesus came to fulfill the law you're close listen to me close this is in my book he did not come to keep the law Matter of fact, Jesus broke the law on a regular basis. He ate what he was supposed to eat. He touched what he wasn't supposed to touch. He was, he was constantly breaking the law of Moses, but he never broke the law of God. Cause the law of God was always love. Because every time he broke the law of Moses, it was always out of heart of love. When he healed someone on the Sabbath, he broke the law of Moses, but he never broke the law of God. He came to fulfill the law, bring it to a completion and an end. But he did not come to keep it perfectly, because Jesus did not keep the law perfectly. Because the law was never for Jesus. Listen to this. Paul tells Timothy, the law is not for the righteous. How many know uh, the that Jesus was righteous? The law, he said, is for sinners. It is for unbelievers. How many know that Jesus never sinned? And so the law was never formed in the first place. He came and was born under the law to bring it to an ending. He didn't come to keep the law. Matter of fact, he was constantly breaking the law. We we doing all right this morning? All right. I'm, I'm having fun at least. And so he would say things like, I'm saying this to the Jews. And, and let me just say this, and this is... Tends to be a a shocker to Western evangelicalism, but Jesus wasn't a Jew. The truth is you got your Jewishness from your father. Jesus' father wasn't a Jew. His mother was. He was half Jew. He was raised as a Jew in Jewish culture, but his daddy ain't a Jew. How many know? Heavenly Father ain't a Jew. He's not. You you get your identity and all of that from your father, not from your mother. But he came and submitted himself to that system and that culture ultimately to bring it to an end to show that it could not bring reconciliation and redemption to humanity. Only God could. And so Jesus is speaking and he's now giving them a new covenant concept. And he says this. I've got one commandment for you. Everybody say one thing. He's like, listen, in this, in this new covenant, I'm going to simplify all this. You're going to go from 613 rules, and by the time Jesus showed up, the scribes and Pharisees had added 240 more, plus 365 prohibitions. So by the time Jesus showed up, there was over a 1,000 rules to keep. No wonder Jesus shows up and he says, Is anybody tired, anybody weary, anybody burned out of religion? Everybody was like, Yes, yes, and yes. We are exhausted. And he's like, I'm going to simplify all this. I'm going to give you one thing. He said, this one thing brings everything to fulfillment because love is the fulfillment of the law. And God is love. And God fulfilled the law. Love covers everything. And he said, like, I'm going to make this real simple. This is how you the world will know that you're mine. That you radically love humans. And I want you to hear this. Not that you radically love God. But that you radically love humans. Jesus was asked by the Pharisees one day, they said, what is a... Rabbi, what's the greatest commandment under the law? He said, that's easy. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. They were expecting that one, and they had a rebuttal for it. But then Jesus adds in there, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. They didn't have an answer for that one because under the law and under a Jewish mindset, it was all about your horizontal relationship with God, or it was all about your vertical. It was all about you and God. As long as you and God were good, that's fine. You could do whatever you wanted to your neighbor. That's why loving your neighbor as you love yourself wasn't... It meaning that you had to love everybody. You only had to love other Jews. You didn't have to love the Gentiles. You didn't have to love the people that are you didn't have to love the marginalized. As long as you and God were good, that's all that mattered. That was a mindset in their culture. And Jesus showed up and he said, I'm gonna flip this whole script. It's no longer about how deep you and God are. It's gonna have everything to do with how now you treat humanity. Isn't it? Let's be honest. If we were to go to Walmart in most cities and we were to take out our phone and do an interview with people, and we were to ask them, what is your opinion of God, church, and Christianity? Most of the time, I mean, you might run into someone that's been around some New Day people. And they say, man, some of the most kind, loving, accepting people I've ever met in my entire life. But let's be honest, most of the time people are going to say, mean Judgmental, bigots. I, I mean, I mean, the sad thing is, is it, it, it's almost like there. You know, there's a whole movement today, and I understand it, where people are almost saying, you know what, man, we're we're, we're actually shifting away from Christianity, just because a lot of what's happened with Christianity as a whole is it's almost become a whole another Pharisaical sect. And because the word Pharisee means separatist. So anytime you have a mindset of us and them, you've just literally just become a modern-day Pharisee the moment you bring up any walls and you do any labeling. Let's just turn back into that again. And, you know, God never called us Christians. It says they were first called Christians at Antioch. It was the world that actually called us Christians. He calls us sons. He calls us heirs. Uh, he calls us conquerors. I mean, what what he, he calls us overcomers. He calls us his wife, his bride. It's amazing what he calls us compared to what we have been called or what we have been labeled. But Jesus said this. He said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And he said, this is the greatest commandment. He said, these are one in the same. In other words, you cannot separate your love from God from your love for people. The sad thing is, is this is what's happened a lot of times in the church. Jesus said that, that's true. But he was quoting the law back to law keepers. So there's nothing wrong with loving your neighbor as you love yourself. It's just, it's extremely, it's extremely conditional on how you feel about you. So it's good to love your neighbor as you love yourself, but what if you don't like yourself that week? You know, have you ever gone through a week where you don't, you know, you don't like yourself, you don't like your spouse, you don't even barely like your kids, you're not even sure you like God that week. I mean, I mean, you just had one of those weeks where, you know, I'm not happy with me or anybody else, and so guess what happens? If you run into me in a good week, and man, there's money in the bank, the family's all doing well, I mean man, things are in place. Whoa, God, God's been good, man, I'm gonna love you the way I love me, cause I really like me right now. And because I really like me, I'm really gonna like you. But if you run into me on one of those weeks, it could be, it could stink for you, because it's gonna be conditional on how I feel about me. That's why Jesus said, I've got a new commandment for you. It, it, it's, it's not that he said, it's a bad thing to love your neighbor as you love yourself, but it's highly conditional on how you feel about your circumstances. He said, this is how I want you to love. I don't want you to just love your neighbor the way you love yourself. I want you to love your neighbor the way I have loved you. That takes it to a whole nother level. Why? Because he's always patient with us. He's always kind with us. He is not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrong. That, that's how he loves. He said, that's how I want you to love. He said, I I want you to love this way, and matter of fact, it's the only command in this new covenant I'm going to give you. I mean, I I wonder what would happen if just everybody who calls themselves the church or Christians would just take one year and get the one thing down. I mean, what, what, what if... The body of Christ as a whole just made up our mind that we are going to love the way he loved. We're we're, we're not going to focus on all this other stuff. We're just going to focus on the one thing. But this is what confuses us. Jesus said, I've got one commandment for you. In the Greek, the word there is commandment, precept. It is one thing. But then John 14, the very next chapter, the translators messed it up for us. Because the very next chapter, it says... If you love me, you keep my commandments. And they add an S when there's no S in the Greek. If you love me, what he said is you keep my commandment. Now you gotta understand something. The same thing happened in 1 John. As 1 John says, if you, if you, if you love him, then you're gonna keep his commandments. The problem is, is then we think that's talking about all the commandments. My first sermon, I was 20 years old, I came home from Bible school, my dad said in three weeks, you're gonna be preaching. It's like, okay, my first sermon, 1 John chapter 2, if you say you know me and you don't obey my commands, you're a liar. And I I come out of Bible school, and, man, I mean, there's folks that had walked with Jesus 40 years in my parents' church. By the time I got done, man, I mean, they all thought that they, were, they didn't even know Jesus. I was like, you lie, you fry. You know, you don't tithe. I mean, man, by the time I got done, man, I mean, because I interpreted that, if you say you love God and you don't obey every one of those commands, you are a liar. And I was standing there lying to everybody because I wasn't doing that either. Until you understand what he was saying is, if you love me, you keep my commandment. Only one thing, love. Man, this simplifies the whole deal, but I think it's interesting that he says the only litmus test that you're actually a follower of me is, is not your prayer life. It's not. How many people you pray for and they fall on the floor. How accurate your prophecies are. How many signs, wonders, and miracles follow you. It doesn't matter. Uh, uh, you know, all all of this, uh, you know, you're, you're giving records and you show up to every service and you're, you're faithful to do everything that you're asked to do. He said the only litmus test to actually show that you're a follower of me is that you love humans. So I think it's why a lot of people would just rather stay under law and mixture because at least under the law, I can go hang out at a monastery or a convent and just meet Jesus and my Bible and wear some linen, and I'm good. I ain't got to mess with no crazy people see, where the rubber meets the road in our Christian life, I used to think that maturity is that, man, you could exegete the scriptures and you had revelation coming out of your ears and you could gather together with one another and, man, you could impress people with what you know. But the older I get, I realize real maturity is how you learn to love and get along with humans. It's not about how many scriptures you can quote to me. It's not about how much of the Bible you've memorized. Do you love your brother? I mean, we we wonder why a lot of times we're not able to reach cities. I mean, what happened to the church from the book of Acts? They that have turned the world upside down have now shown up here. It's because, man, we got churches all fighting with each other. Christians fighting with each other. I mean, everybody loves to label each other and attack. And rather than live by the one thing, the one thing Jesus told us to do, which is to love. He he never told us that we all had to always agree together, that we all had to believe the same thing. He said what we need to do is that we need to learn to love. And i got to be very honest with you. Probably my first... I've been preaching almost 30 years. My first 18 to 20 years of preaching, I had no concept of that. I was preaching about authority, power, apostles, prophets, fivefold ministry. And I still love all that stuff, all about church government, and, and I mean, you know, signs, wonders, miracles. And the whole time I was missing the foundation. And the foundation is this is about love, chief. And if you're missing that, everything else is off. Everything else goes awry. But I realized something. You know, John says this also. He said, perfect love removes all fear. But I realized this. If love removes fear, fear then can also remove love. And when you've been raised under a message of fear, you don't know how to receive love and you don't know how to give love. Because there has been a a battle for thousands of years between love and fear. Hate is not the opposite of love. Fear is the opposite of love. Because fear absolutely destroys love. We have a hard time loving others because of fear. Fear of rejection. Fear of them not loving us back. It's fear that is the enemy. But the more that I learn to love, the less fearful, the more vulnerable, the more... I'm not worried about if anybody gives me love back because the best definition I found for agape is that it's a one-way love that expects nothing in return. God's love for us. He loved us whether we ever love him back. That's why first John says it's so clear. Here is love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us. Under the law, you had loved God. And then you get some love back. But now, he said, in this new covenant, the truth is, I'm here to clear up everything you thought I was that I'm not. And I'm here to show you that I'm like Jesus. And I came to love you whether you ever return any love for me back or not. My love for you is not conditional on your behavior. My love for you is conditional on my behavior and my faithfulness. Not yours. But now watch this. So a few years ago, I had a young man when we were leading a church. And he, he was a young former gangbanger, had no church background, and uh, came up to me and he said, you know, I've been thinking about something. He said, you know, you've taught us about this old and new covenant, how the cross changed everything. He said, I've not been able to find anywhere after the cross where we're told how to love God. He said, you know what? All through, before the cross in the Old Testament, there's all kinds of ways. If you love me, you keep my commands. If you love me, you do this. If you love me, you do that. I mean, he gave us actual things to do, when it came to prove our love. And he said, but after the cross, I can't find anything outside of loving one another. And I said, i got to get back to you. I haven't thought about it. And so I began to go through the new covenant, and just with some fresh eyes, and it hit me. He's right. I mean, First John makes it clear. If you say you love God who you cannot see, and you hate your brother who you can see, and the love of God is not in you, you're missing the whole point. You can't talk about how deep you and Jesus are, and you can't stand your cousin. You can't stand that person that harmed you or abused you. And we understand that love also has healthy boundaries. But our love for humanity has nothing to do with that. I can love someone and, and, and not be able to go back and be their best buddy because they hurt me and harm me because there's wisdom there. But my love for that person is another ball game. If I can't pray for them, then there's something going on inside of me that needs to be healed. If I can't forgive them, if I can't think peacefully towards them and I want harm to come to them, if I want punishment on them. That's why John tells us perfect love removes all fear because fear leads to punishment. And he who still fears, and the context there is fearing judgment from God on judgment day, he said, has not been perfected in love. So I went back to him and I said, man, you know what? That was a great question. Then the Holy Spirit began to take me to Matthew 25 and I'll, I'll start trying to land this plane. I get in a place like this where I can say whatever I want and it's dangerous. I don't have to qualify everything here. (laughs) Thank God. Matthew 25, Jesus starts talking about when He would, and how He would judge righteousness. And He starts talking about sheep, and goats. Now, I, I've sat in all day Saturday seminars where people were talking about the sheep and the goats, and the sheep nations and the goat nations, and they threw that into some eschatology that ain't got nothing to do with any of that, because to a first century Second Temple Jew, when Jesus started talking about sheep and goats, they would have went to animal sacrifices. They wouldn't have been thinking about 2,000 years in the future and and whole nations that are goat nations. And, I mean, how exactly does that even work? It's ridiculous. I mean, if God spared cities for just, you know, a, a few believers, I mean, he's not calling a whole nation goats. It's just silly. But to a first century Jew who was the audience, when Jesus started talking about sheep, they would have went to the atonement offering. When he started talking about goats, they would have went to the sin offering. Their, their mindset would have been, this is about a sacrificial system. And when the goat was offered up, the sin offering, that was when the scapegoat would be, would be offered. And they would blind, blindfold of the, the goat. They would name it Azazel. They would put the blood... Uh, on its head, and then they would send it to walk off and go walk off a cliff, and it would die. Then the sheep, that was the atonement offering, and that was atoning for the sins of the people, literally for that whole nation and that whole world at that time. And so that mentality was totally different. So when Jesus is talking about sheep and goats, He was talking about two mindsets that we can have. We either have a redemptive mindset, an atonement mindset, that we're here to bring redemption and atonement and grace for people, or we have a mindset of a scapegoat. What's a scapegoat? It's when we say, it was their fault. It started in the garden. That woman you gave me. The moment we say, one of them. The moment we start talking separation. Oh, you're, you're one of Those people. See, anytime we have a mindset of one of those People, America is full of us. The, those white people, those black people, those Asian people, those Hispanic people, those homosexuals, those, 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 those. We try to come up with all kinds of tho- those sinners, those, those people. And now we're heading into an election year, and I almost want to just shut my Facebook down for a year because now it's going to be those Republicans, those Democrats, those liberal. You know, I mean, I mean, we're we're going to find something because we love to label, and when you label me, you negate me because we bring a bunch of us and them and then the church lord have mercy the church is full of this those catholics those lutherans those baptists those charismatics those pentecostals those apostolics those 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 universalists those you know those conclusionists those all kinds of is and isms that bring schisms and we just love to put all kinds of focus on us and them because we can't stand the idea for some reason that it's just us and it's just us. We are, according to Paul on Mars Hill, we are all God's offspring. Genos is the Greek where we're all his children, his family, and his kind. There's no one that does not carry the imagio Deo, the image of God. And the beauty of the gospel, I'm working on my second book on this right now, the beauty of the gospel is I was taught my whole life that our number one job is to get people to accept Jesus and bring Jesus into the heart of course there's no scripture for that anywhere in the Bible It simply tells us to believe in our heart. It doesn't say anything about inviting Jesus into your heart because Paul tells us that the mystery that has been hidden from the ages And is a mystery now revealed to the Gentiles and it is Christ in you The hope of glory our job is not to get Christ in people. It's to reveal the Christ already in people it's to remove all the veils that are keeping him hidden, just like in the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was, a veil was in the way. That's why 2 Corinthians 3 tells us whenever the veil is removed, when someone turns to Christ, now they begin to see him and behold him clearly. And so that's why Paul said on the Damascus Road that on the Damascus Road, Christ was revealed in me. He didn't say Christ was revealed to me. The good news is this. Not that you're a filthy, rotten, stinking sinner on your way to hell in a handbasket and God can't stand you. The truth is that God already made you righteous Because of what he did on the cross, according to Romans 5, because of one man's unrighteous deed, all were made unrighteous, and now because of one man's righteous deed, all were now made righteous, and the good news is, all you got to do is believe this, man, but if you don't believe it, listen, this is the gospel in a nutshell, that you might live 80 years of your life, and you're living in a pig pen, you're living in sin, you're living a mess, because you're acting like an orphan, because you don't know you're a son, you've got $10 million in the bank, and your father has provided for everything you need for life and godliness, he's already blessed you with everything you would ever desire, Bless you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly Christ, but if you don't hear it and you don't know it, then you live like an orphan when you're a son. That's why the gospel comes to announce to you. It does not come to preach to the sin in you, it comes to preach to the Son in you. It's to reveal the Son that's always been there, that you just didn't know it. You had to awaken to this reality. That's why I have no problem telling people the whole world has been reconciled, but the world still needs to be sozoed. They still need to be saved, healed, delivered, protected, prosperous, whole, complete. We've got all kinds of folks that have not experienced the beauty of sozo. Jesus is the Savior already of all men. He already took care of it all, but if you don't hear it and believe it, then you don't enjoy the benefits of it. And you're believing it doesn't make it a reality. You believe it because it's already true. It's already true of who you really are in Christ Jesus. But you see, anytime we start labeling, anytime we have a scapegoat mentality, it's, it's, it's one of those people. I, I, I almost can't stand people like, so what are you? Are you one of those grace preachers? Are you one of those? And I'm like, listen, man, I'm a little bit of everything. I'm a mutt. I'm a little bit of this and I'm a little bit of that. I I embrace every move of the spirit that's happened for the last two thousand years because all of them had solid premises and then all of them went off into some crazy stuff. And I'm like I'm a little bit I'm a little bit I'm a little bit Lutheran because I believe this. I'm a little bit Catholic because I believe this. I'm a I'm I'm a little bit of this. I'm a little bit of that. I'm, man, if it's out there and there's truth in it, I'm part of that. But what we do is we compartmentalize, and we one of those people. Because, see, how I view God is how I view myself and then how I view humans. So if I view God in a certain light, then I'm going to view myself in that same light because I behold as in a mirror the glory of God. And then I treat others the way that I feel about myself and the way I feel about God. See, if I don't view every human as valuable, if I have a, if I have a theology like a John Calvin, who John Calvin believed that some were born for glory and some were born to burn and it was predestined, and that his God was pretty much, pretty much ticked off on a regular basis, I have quotes by John Calvin that John Calvin says, the toddlers while God is holding them over the pits of hell, will turn at God and hiss at him. Toddlers. Like, you know, imagine a two-year-old. I mean, God just holding a two-year-old. I mean, What kind of sick mind comes up with this stuff? I also have a quote by him where he said, The incredible joy in the heart of a believing parent while in heaven, looking over the abyss into hell and seeing their unbelieving children being tormented, will be full of joy and bliss because of the justice of God. Huh? First of all, man, if I'm seeing anybody being tortured, especially my own kids, I'm going to be questioning somebody about what's going on, or say, can I take their place? That's sickness, but you see, if that's your God, and that's who your God is, that's why John Calvin had a man from France by the name of Jacob, or James Silvanus, and he wrote John a letter one day, and he said, I disagree with your whole premise, this is baloney. John didn't like it very much, and Several years later, good old James, he showed up in Geneva, Switzerland, in Johnny Calvin's hometown, and John hears that his nemesis that disagreed with him is in town. He went and grabbed a couple of preacher buddies, grabbed a hold of old John, old James, or Jacob Silvatus, took him down to the city square, tied him to a pole and set him on fire. I mean, my gosh. I mean, burned him as a heretic because he disagreed with them. I said, at least nowadays people just unfriend you on Facebook and call you a heretic. I mean, they don't set you on fire. I mean, that's intense right there. But if that's what you feel your God is like, then it's okay for you to demonize someone. It's okay for you to enslave others. We had preachers in America quoting Bible verses that it was okay to have slaves because black people didn't have souls. Because rather than viewing every human as valuable in the image and likeness of God, if I view you as something else... Because, see, I, I, I I get... vehemently preachers arguing with me that not everybody is a child of God. The Bible is clear. First John says they're sons of God and they're sons of the devil. They that still sin are sons of the devil. And I look at him and I say, he doesn't have a reproductive organ. I'm like, I don't know where... What, matter of fact, why don't you read the whole book of First John? Because he said, they that still sin are sons of the devil, which was a horrible translation. But then he goes on later and explains what sin is. Sin is transgressing the law. So the devil there is not talking about an entity, but the accuser. Who is the accuser of the law? Sons of the law. are You're either a son of God or a son of the law that's still accusing you. You're not talking about actually demonic seed. Because if... Uh, if I view someone as demonic seed, this happened with the father of the Reformation, Martin Luther. Incredible revelation of grace and faith, but he was extremely anti-Semitic, hated Jews, called them Christ killers. So, three, four hundred years in the future after the Reformation, a man by the name of Hitler was able to convince a whole nation of Lutherans that it was okay to kill all those Jews. Because God would do it. Because that's our view of God. Our view of God has everything to do with our view of ourselves and our view of humanity. How I treat those people, that's why Matthew 25, Jesus goes on to say this. He said, for I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was naked, you didn't clothe me. I was in prison, you didn't visit me. I was a stranger, you didn't let me in. And the disciples are like, what are you talking about? We've been with you 24-7, 365. And he says, if you've done it to the least of these, then you've done it unto me. In other words, how you treat humanity is actually how you treat me. Hmm. See, Jesus came to remove all the middle walls. A partition. He came to remove all the us and the them, because in Christ there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, black nor white, bond nor free. He came to show us that it's just one big us that we're all one family, that we're all connected, that we're all God's offspring, that he's the God and Father, Ephesians 3, of every family named in heaven and named on earth. There's nobody that's not his child. There's just those that know it because they heard the good news, and there's those that still don't know it, and so they're wayward sons living in the pig pen because they don't know the truth. But they're all his children. That's why the story of the prodigal is not about the son. It's about the father. And when the prodigal came home, the father still ran to him and said, My son, he never stopped being a son just because he was living in the pig pen. He never stopped being how God viewed him and saw him. But you see, anytime I have a mindset of those people, Jesus's, most of Jesus' parables and stories were all about this. He was trying to get the Jewish people to understand that this thing is not about natural Israel. And it's not about God's promises just to you. Because God's promise to Abraham was not to Abraham's seeds, but to Abraham's seed. And Abraham's seed is Christ. Abraham's seed would bless all nations. It's not the nation of Israel that would bless all nations. It would be his seed, and his seed is Christ, because he is the seed. And now all that are in Christ blesses all nations. He said, I'm, I'm here trying to show you something. That Jesus went to the cross as the last Adam, arose now as a new Adam and started a new creation and rebooted the planet. Now no one's born in Adam. Because Jesus was the final one. Woo, that's good news right there. Now all are born in Christ. They just have not all had a revelation of Christ in them. That's why until you have a revelation of Christ in you, then you never walk in all the freedom that God has for you. And so our job is to reveal the love of God to every human. We as followers of Jesus, as sons of God, our heart should be to love as He love, period. But you see, when we have this us and them, Jesus would say things like the kingdom of God. He was constantly trying to convince the Jews of this. He would in his parables say things like the kingdom of God is like a man who threw a great supper. And he bid everyone who was invited to come. The Jews are like, that's right, that's us. We're, we're God's chosen people. We were the first invited. But then they started to make excuse. And, and so the husbandman gets upset and he sends his servant out to the highways and byways. And he invites everybody that were those people to now come in. Because Jesus said, actually, how you actually prove to me. This whole thing is how you love the marginalized. It's how you care for widows and orphans. It's how you take care of the people that you call one of them. And every one of us in here, I guarantee, every one of you in here have been at one time or another called one of them. Oh, you're one of them poor people. You're one of them skinny people. You're one of them. You're one of them chubby people. You're one of those. You're one of them. You're one of those. You're one of those. I mean, we get labeled by everybody, and we know how that made us feel. Nobody enjoys. Being on the outside, where Jesus brings this gospel and he says, I'm now here to include everyone that has been excluded. I'm here now to make this thing bigger than just one nation. I'm here now to bring redemption to the world. For God so loved the cosmos. It doesn't say for God so loved humans. Jesus came to redeem not just humanity, but the cosmos. Everything that got jacked up, he's here to put it back together again. Now watch, and I'll start to wind this down. The same thing happened when Jesus is telling the story, and I know many of you have heard this similarly. I know Pastor Aaron has gone down this road, but the story of Lazarus and the rich man has nothing to do with hell or compartments of hell. Jesus is being questioned by Pharisees, and Jesus says, well, let me tell you a story, and the story he tells them is a well-known Greek and Egyptian fable. It would be like me standing here and bringing an analogy out of Hansel and Gretel. And you would recognize the story of Hansel and Gretel because it's something you heard from the time you were a child. So Jesus starts telling the story, but the original story talks about a rich man and a poor man, and the poor man didn't have a name. It was the rich man that was actually given the name, and the rich man's name was Lord, Z-L-O-U-R-D-E-S. L-O-U-R-D-E-S. Jesus starts to tell a story that was very well known in their culture, and he said there was a rich man and there was a poor man, and the rich man walked by the poor man, but he gave the poor man a name, and he gave him the name Lazarus. And so that perked every Jew up, because what always bothered me about that whole story is that they tried to stone Jesus after he tells the story. Why would a bunch of Jews try to stone own Jesus for telling a story about the afterlife and about hell when they, their view of the afterlife and hell was soul sleep. They believed that when you died, you went into the grave, into Sheol, into Hades, uh, mistranslated as hell, and you slept with your fathers until the Messiah would come. When the Messiah would come, he then would bust through at the resurrection, raise you from the dead. That's if you were a Pharisee. If you were a Sadducee, you just stayed Sadducee you your whole life because you just stayed in the grave and you just died and ceased to exist. And that, that's why when Jesus is standing in the book of Matthew and he says, upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prepare, prevail against it. The gates of the grave, he was standing at Caesarea Philippi at the gate of Hades, or the gate of Sheol, and they believed that their Messiah would bust through that gate. He was actually prophesying, I am he, I'm about to bust through this gate at the resurrection. I'm going to go down into the grave, I'm going to preach to the captives. That means there was an opportunity for post-mortem conversion. He went and preached to the dead, and he preached the good news to them, and then emptied out hell, I believe, got the keys, locked it from the inside. Nobody's been there for 2,000 years. Because if he's got the keys, no one goes in or out without him. That means nobody's died for 2,000 years. I'm the resurrection and the life. I overcame the grave once and for all. Defeated it. It's a done deal. That's the beauty of the gospel. Not just that He forgave us for our sins, He defeated death, and we had the fear of death according to, according to Hebrews 2, that was the fear of death that was keeping us bound. Now watch this. He's telling this story, and unless you understand that Lazarus is the English of the Greek word, but Jesus didn't speak Greek, He spoke Aramaic. And in the Aramaic, the name Lazarus is translated Eleazar. The reason that's important, of course, is every Jew standing there they're like we know who Eleazar is he was the servant of Father Abraham and when Father Abraham is crying out to God one day and he says I have no son and I have no heir to give my inheritance to all I have is my servant Eleazar who's not a part of the covenant it's a Gentile that's going to receive this and so when Jesus said they both die and they go into Hades they go into the grave it is Eleazar that's in the bosom of Abraham and the Jewish the rich people the Jews they knew they were the rich people they were the ones clothed in purple and they're the ones now on the outside because the people you excluded are actually the ones that are now being included because your mindset was God, they're one of them and God wants you to know those people are who he's dying for and with you the reason they tried to stone Jesus is because he was telling a bunch of Jews that the Gentiles would be in Abraham and some of them that thought they're the seed of Abraham actually aren't that's why they tried to stone him they got so angry at him nearly all of Jesus' parables He was trying to get into the mindset of the Jews. You have misunderstood all of this. You thought this was all about natural Israel and the Messiah would come and kick some Roman tail and set you all up to rule the world. That's not what this is about. It's bigger than that. Maybe it's why Saul on the Damascus Road Jesus reveals himself to him, and he says this. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Notice he didn't say, why are you persecuting the people of the way? Why are you persecuting the church? He said, Saul, how you treat them is actually how you're treating me. How you're treating humanity that you believe are one of them, those people, I can enslave them, I can imprison them, I can throw them in jail, and I can kill them, and it's okay to do that because the scriptures is telling me it's okay. And the whole time God appears to him and he says, you're actually persecuting me. How you treat them is actually how you treat me. This loving your enemy thing, that's like not a suggestion. It's actually where the rubber meets the road in our Christianity because if I can't love my enemy, I don't know if you've thought of this before, but it intrigues me that Jesus never told us to love his enemies. He told us to love our enemies. Because God doesn't have any enemies. How do we know this? Because no greater love is this than a man lay down his life for his friends and he laid down his life for all. God towards humanity, all he sees is his friends. We were enemies of God, Colossians 2 tells us, in our minds. Men are enemies towards God. God is never an enemy towards us. His heart is always passionately pursuing us. That is why, maybe that's why James tells us that, listen, confess your faults one to another. Notice he doesn't say go confess your faults to God. Why don't you tell one another, because normally your issue it's not an issue with God because God doesn't even remember any of your mess anyway. He casts it as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered again. He's got amnesia when it comes to your mess. But normally your mess harms someone here. And so maybe the Catholic confessional wasn't too far off. Because we tell told people, you just go directly to God. Well, you know, going and confessing your sins to God, I mean, it might make you feel better. But God's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm not even counting those sins against you. So if I'm not even counting them against you, why are you telling me? Maybe you ought to go tell the person that you hurt, the person you sinned against. Maybe, Maybe this thing is how I actually prove my love for God is when I love the God and Christ that's in every human. Y'all doing all right? It's getting quiet in here. See, to me, it's, it's gotten so simple the older I'm getting. I, do, I don't have permission to be ugly to anybody. I don't. I used to think so. My A personality used to be so out of control. Such a law keeper. I'm a prophet of God. I'm like Elijah. So I can be ugly to you. No. Uh, our life, our model is Jesus. And we see how Jesus treated humans. We see how Jesus treated enemies. His response to enemies was, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's where this thing comes down to. Maybe, maybe it's why when Jesus rises from the dead, he walks into Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? He said, yes, sir. He said, feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. In other words, how you're showing your love for me is actually, Peter, how you love, how you love them. How we treat those people. How we treat those who have harmed us, those who've lied about us, those who've talked about us, those who have misunderstood us, those who have betrayed us. Uh, Last year and a half, I went through one of the most intense betrayals I've ever experienced, and I knew that I'd gotten somewhere when I could genuinely pray, God, please don't let him reap what he sowed. I don't want any harm on them. I don't want any harm on their family. And when I was able to respond in love, that's when there was peace. That's that's when I, I think about even what happened. I don't even get an ounce angry. It's more empathy that I feel because people are normally responding to us out of their own wounds and their own hurt and because of things they've experienced. And a lot of times rather than finding out those things, we just respond back. Because rather than do the one thing, we can focus on doing all this other stuff. I'll stop with this. When, when we had started our church in Michigan now almost eight years ago, one thing I prayed, I said, God, I want, I want our church to be a place that when a prostitute from the east side of Saginaw wakes up on a Sunday afternoon, cause she'd been up all night, and she's had a rough week. Maybe she got beat by somebody or maybe her pimp harmed her. That somewhere on Sunday afternoons, we only did Sunday nights, that in her mind she says, I just need to go somewhere today where I won't be judged. I won't be rejected. I need to go someplace safe where I'll just be radically loved. And her first response be to come visit us. I said, I, I, I want, I want the stripper from three miles down the road at the at the Deja Vu, who's had a really really rough week, and she's a single mom, and she has no skills, she has no college experience. The only thing she knows how to do to be able to provide for her kids is to do this, and she doesn't really want to do it. She just doesn't know what else to do, but she's had a rough week, and she wakes up and she says, I just need to go somewhere today, where I'll be loved and I'll be accepted. The the drunk and the alcoholic and the drug addict and not only those down and out, but those up and out. And we had this happen that there'd be somebody living out in the township in a million dollar house who had a business and lost the business because he got hurt and he got, was given pain, painkillers and he got addicted to Oxycontin. And he's now looking at jail time because he kept going into his neighbor, the doctor's house and writing his own prescriptions. Now he's lost his family and he's lost everything that no matter what someone is going through, that they feel safe to be able to come into a house of people that are not there to try to change them, but just love them. And so, about our first two or three months, we were meeting in a basement hall and had orange shag carpet, a big bar in the corner, mirrors all the way around. It's like completely unreligious. It was a fun place, but it was cheap. a month, and I'm like, if nobody comes, I can pay for that myself. And about our second month, there was a man who was riding his bike by the hall, and he heard music coming from the basement. He went and parked and came downstairs, and this man, his name was Jeff, and Jeff was pretty well known in our town as one of the town drunks. Jeff rode his bike everywhere, and he always had elbow pads and knee pads on because Jeff – He'd never have his license again because he was always falling off his bike. He'd come downstairs and he hears the music and I happened to be home that Sunday and I was preaching and afterwards he'd come up for prayer and, and man, we all just gathered around, loved on Jeff and Jeff, Jeff became like our norm from Cheers. You know, Jeff would walk in the door and everybody'd be like, Jeff! You know, Norman walk into Cheers, everybody'd be like, Norm! Cause Norm finds a place where Norm, he's overweight. I mean, his wife Vera, they don't get along real well. He's got a dead end job, but he found a place where everybody knows his name and he could be himself without being judged. I said, man, wouldn't that, wouldn't that be nice if the church would turn into some bar mentality? I've said for years, the world is the bars. Uh, the bar is the world's church. They go at least once a week. They get a message from the pastor, the bartender. He says, everything's going to be all right. You're going to be okay. They eat a little something, drink a little something. They shout there. They dance there. Sometimes they even fall on the floor. <laughs> and then, when, then they wonder why a lot of times they come to our church. So they're like, I'm going back to mine. It's, <laughs> it's more fun over yonder. <laughs> and there's no cover charge. You know? <laughs> But Jeff, he would walk in the door, and he'd always look for me. He'd always be like, Bishop, where, where, where's Bishop? You'd give him a hug, and, man, there'd be like three or four fifths bouncing in his backpack. You could smell it all over him. But, man, we, we just loved on Jeff. Well, about a month or two later, we were getting ready to move into our, our first building where we were able to let everything stay set up. And we weren't tearing down all the time. And so I got up, and I said, for the next three weeks... From 10 in the morning till 10 at night, I'm gonna be at the building. We've gotta build a platform. We've got drywalling. We've got painting. We've gotta build a sound booth. There was a bunch of stuff that we needed to do. Get everything in place. And Jeff comes up to me and says, I'm gonna be there every day. I was like, okay, well, praise the Lord, Jeff. That's awesome. Didn't expect him to be there. Sure enough, I pull up Monday morning, 10 a.m., he's locking his bike up and he'd met me there and we had a group of people. I mean, Jeff's amazing. I mean, he's drywalling. He's building platforms and I'm like, wow, I wasn't expecting this at all. Well, the next day, it's just Jeff and I there. It's around lunchtime, and I said, hey, Jeff, let's go get something to eat. And so we just go and sit at Burger King. We're sitting across the table, and I said, Jeff, you know, I, I've never heard your story. I said, share your story with me. He said, well, he said, when I was in my 20s, I had my own contracting business, and I was like, okay, well, that that just makes sense. He said, but I fell off a ladder, and I, I broke my back, and I got addicted to Vicodin, and then it led to uh, it led to alcohol, it led to heroin, it led to other stuff. And he said, now, 40-some years later, he said, I had a wife and a daughter. I've not seen them in over 30 years. I'm estranged from them. And he said, i got to be honest with you, I've just kind of lost hope. I've been in and out of rehabs and nothing worked. And he said, can I share something with you, though? I said, what's that, Jeff? He said, you know, I don't wear these elbow pads and knee pads just because I'm always falling off my bike. He said, the weekends are really tough for me. He said on the weekends, he said there's teenagers and kids that they know kind of my, my path that I go on. And there's times they hide behind a house and they come running out and knock me off my bike. He said people open their doors when I'm riding my bike and knock me off my bike. He said, I get spit on. He said, I, weekends are really tough for me. He said, but man, I get up on Sunday. And he said, I just say, man, I just need to go somewhere today where I won't be rejected. I'll be loved, and I'll be accepted, and it's safe. And he said, my first thought is to come visit y'all. Man, I, I sat there in Birkin and just cried like a little baby, just sat there and sobbed. And he's like, are you okay? What's going on? I said, Jeff, you have no idea. And I told him what I had prayed a year and a half or so before, before we even got everything started. And I said, Father, that's that's what the church is to be known for. We're not to be known for our judgment. We're not to be known for behavior modification. We're not to be known to try to change everybody. Our job is to just radically love everybody. It's the Holy Spirit's job to change people. God does a better job than we do. And if we could ever just get to the place where we just love as he loved, that's what's going to change the world. That's what's going to transform the world. But I've also found this, people have a hard time loving others because they're not convinced they're loved. And until we're completely convinced that we are unconditionally loved by our Father and there's nothing we can do to change his mind about it, once that becomes a reality, then we start to give love. I remember the town I lived in for years was my hometown and my parents' hometown and I will never forget the day about 20 years ago, my mom said to me one day, she said, yeah, I talked to your a couple of your cousins, I had a bunch of cousins there, and I had a couple of girl cousins who said to my mom one day, because we had just had a family get-together, and they said, we're uncomfortable around Jamie. And my mom was like, well, why? They're like, well, we feel like he sees right through us. And I was so proud of that 20 years ago. I was like, that's right. It's the anointing. The man of God is in their midst the prophet of God, they're under conviction in my holy presence. Until one day the Holy Spirit said to me, he said, I want you to go through the Gospels and try to find one time where a quote-unquote unbeliever or sinner ever felt uncomfortable in Jesus' presence. The truth is he was called a friend of sinners. Notice, not a friend of ex-sinners. That means not everybody that got around Jesus changed. But he was still their friend, and they felt safe. In his presence, my prayer from that day on started to change, and I started to pray, God, I want all humanity to feel comfortable and safe in my presence. It's not my job to try to put people under conviction. It's my job to simply love as he loved. What would happen if everyone who believes in Jesus around the world would just simply focus on the one thing? I believe we turn the world upside down in a matter of months. Instead, we tend to focus on everything else. A new commandment I give to you, love one another, even as I have loved you. And then he repeats it, and I say love one another, because how I treat you is really how I'm treating him. How I love you is actually how I show how much I love him. Bow your heads a moment, would you? Father, I thank you today. Lord, I thank you for your amazing love and your amazing goodness for us. And Lord, I ask for everyone that's here, everyone that may listen to this, that may, that may struggle, or we all deal with times where we don't, we don't even love ourselves, let alone love others. It's, we struggle at times in loving those close to us, let alone those that we don't even know. But the more we know your love for us, the easier it becomes for us to love others. I ask that you help each one of us here. Teach us, Holy Spirit, what it really means to love our enemies. Teach us what it means. Lord, many of us in the next couple of weeks are about to get together with family, and, and family tends to be triggers in our lives to anger and frustration because of things that were said and things that were unsaid. And many times, rather than it be a time of peace, uh, at times we struggle when we get together uh, at times even with our family who who we 're who we love but we struggle with and I ask that you help each one of us here in this season to be the sons of God and sons of God are peacemakers that we don 't walk into these family situations and stir stuff up, but that we really learn how to forgive how to forgive others, how to forgive ourselves, and then how to love. Help us, Holy Spirit. This can only be done by the love of God that's shed brought in our hearts by you. I thank you for for New Day Church. I thank you for the heart of this house and the leaders here to radically love humanity, to love those that the church has thrown away. So just teach us what that means in Jesus' name now. We just do one thing. We just lift your hands kind of like this for a moment, just like a little child like you're receiving. And I want you to just pray this with me. Scripture says, I believe, therefore I speak. I think there's something that happens when we actually audibly say something because the kingdom is voice activated. Just pray this. Father, in Jesus' name, I receive your love today, fresh and new this morning. Thank you that your mercies are new every day. Now help me by the Holy Spirit to forgive those that have harmed me, to love enemies to love those around me, and to love myself. Teach me how to do this and how to be this so the world can transform around me. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name. Jesus' name. Now, Holy Spirit, I ask that you seal this in every one of our hearts and minds. I thank you that this season is going to be one of the most peaceful. That we've experienced in years. I thank you for the reflection of Christ that's going to pour out of every heart in Jesus name. In Jesus name. Well guys, thank you for receiving today. Man, I, I enjoyed really, I, I pray you guys heard my heart and uh, the heart of the Father above everything else that this, this is the thing. Uh, it really is the thing. And we can focus on all this other stuff, but if we're missing this, we're missing the thing big time. Uh, I want to just pray that you guys have an amazing Christmas, uh, an amazing holiday season. Thank you guys for receiving. I want to thank again Pastor Aaron and the team here. You guys are awesome and uh, always excited to be able to pop in here. Uh, please see me at the table. Uh, I, I need to tomorrow. Uh, I'm, I'm going to do some Christmas shopping, so I need room in my suitcase. So would you please buy all those books <laughs> and, and whatever else I have back there? If God puts in your heart, you know, to bless our ministry, we, we've got things back there. We've got PayPal I mean, we've got a bunch of different things. I just want you to know I, I thank you for receiving today. So stand on your feet if you would. And I was told it was all right to just release you in Jesus name. So uh, I, 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 I want to do something that I, I learned a long time ago. Uh, you know, it, it, it's going to be a Star Trek thing. It's Spock. You, 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 everybody, go like this if you can. Can you do it? Some of you can not do it. That you know, you know when Spock would say he would hold his hand up like this and he would say "Live long and prosper." That's because Leonard Nimoy is a Jew. And actually, the high priest when he would stand and declare the high priestly blessing, he would do this over the people. And so I'll just declare that the high priestly blessing: Father, I thank you. Thank you that we declare God's blessing over you. We declare blessed when you're coming in. We declare blessed when you're going out. We declare God's favor on you. We declare God's riches on you. And we declare nothing but the best. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Love on each other. See me back there. God bless.